the name of Jesus, the light of the world. Amen. Uh, last weekend, uh, our son David and I were uh, on our way home from uh, a little afternoon coffee shop work session with our laptops, and uh, I stopped at the intersection of Snowden River Parkway and Oakland Mills Road in Columbia when the afternoon sun was just blazing right into our faces so powerfully uh, that I couldn't even see the traffic signal right there above and in front of me. And, uh, and so I looked at David, uh, feeling kind of anxious, uh, with the visor all the way down, and I said to him, just tell me when to go, uh, which usually doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in my passengers, but it's uh, <laughs> the way it was. And as uh, I sat there in that moment, it occurred to me that just moments earlier, I was actually thinking about an Ash Wednesday sermon for later this a week, and it struck me that before we get to Ash Wednesday, there would be one more blast of epiphany light today as we celebrate the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, with that thought, the light changed, and I heard a voice from next to me saying, you can go. And so I did. And so we come to the end of the season of light that is known as Epiphany, during which we have celebrated the baptism of our Lord, the call of the fishermen, the healing ministry of Jesus, and a number of other things as an encouragement to us and thought about what they mean to our lives. And in three days from now, we will finally come to Ash Wednesday in the beginning of Lent when the mood will shift and the atmosphere will change and our focus will turn to our Lord's journey to the cross. And the threshold between Epiphany and Lent is the transfiguration, which in Greek is actually the word metamorphosis. When Jesus takes the members of his uh, inner circle to the top of this unnamed high mountain where they receive a vision of Jesus that they have never had before, that St. Mark refers to as dazzling. And in Matthew's version of the story, it says that Jesus was shining like the sun. And as a result of that powerful vision, those guys were changed. Which is why to this very day, we refer to moments like that as our spiritual highs. Because so often, the mountaintop was the place where the people of God got a new vision of God, a new perspective on the vistas of the valley below, whether it was Abraham on Mount Moriah or Moses on Sinai or Elijah waiting for God to speak to him in 1 Kings. As a matter of fact, of all the names and titles that are given to God in the pages of Scripture, one of them is actually El Shaddai, which in Hebrew means God of the mountains. And it was on top of this particular mountain that Peter, James, and John get this vision this dazzling view of the light of God in the person of Jesus. And they are changed, which is to say that they are terrified and completely confused. So much so, says Mark, that they don't know what to say or what to do. And then to add to the mystery and the confusion of the text are the appearances of Moses and Elijah, which to most people represent the law in the case of Moses and the prophets in the case of Elijah. In other words, the whole Old Testament as we know it is an indicator that Jesus was coming to fulfill every bit of it. What form their appearance 
took? I do not know. How Peter and the others recognized who they actually were, I don't know that either. But what comes next is Peter's offer to build these shelters, these dwellings for Moses, for Elijah, and for Jesus. Some say because he wanted to savor and extend that mountaintop experience. Some say because he wanted to show off and take charge, which it certainly would have been like him. And some believing that he was just so freaked out that he didn't know what else to do. But a more plausible explanation is that Peter actually wanted to practice his religion because his religion included a celebration known as the Feast of Tabernacles. When the children of Israel would actually leave their homes and they would go out and construct temporary dwellings and live in them as a reminder of how their ancestors wandered in the wilderness before they finally made it to their new home in God's promised land. And so Peter wanted to pitch some tents He wanted to lean into his religion. He wanted to do something in response to the vision of Jesus. But God, of course, has a better idea when the cloud moves in and they hear this voice saying, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Listen to him. As if to say, this is not about Peter. This is not about his religion. This is not about what he could do for Jesus. This was about what God was doing and was about to do. This was about the light of the world that shines through the darkness of every person's life, and it changes us. And with that, the mountaintop experience comes to a close, and Jesus and the three return down into the valley below where his journey to the cross would get underway, hence the placement of the transfiguration between Epiphany and the season of Lent. And as they go back to the valley, Jesus tells them to keep the experience to themselves, not to talk about it, at least for a while, as his messianic plan was slowly revealed on his terms, at least until, in his words, the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And that's what they do, at least according to Luke's version of the story. And yet they were not unchanged because what they got on that mountaintop was a glimpse of the future. What they got was a peek at the resurrection. What they got was a sneak preview of the coming of Easter and its power to change them. And it was with that vision that they were able to navigate through the valley below. And so in addition to uh, our physical sight, vision is defined as something that we picture in our minds that carries us into the future. It's, it's a picture or an image that stirs up our f- passion and it, it changes our behavior. On August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial right here in Washington and he delivered his I Have a Dream speech about a future day when, in his words, little black children and little white children would play together and their parents would sit down together at the table of brotherhood. That was his vision. And you should know that on that day, 
there were people who were members of the Lutheran Church of St. Andrew at the time who were there. They were there because they shared that vision. A year earlier, President Kennedy went to Rice University in Texas, and he addressed a large group of people in the stadium, and he said, we choose to go to the moon before the end of this decade. Before we had even been out of Earth's orbit by that time, when according to polls, a majority of Americans didn't think we should do it at all. And yet that speech, that vision that it represented set a new trajectory. So that seven summers later, on a Sunday night, just before 11 p.m., my dad woke me up because I had fallen asleep on the couch so that I could see Neil Armstrong climb down the ladder and walk on the surface of the moon. On a more personal note, I remember the vision that God gave to this congregation for the building of this house of worship and how we would meet together week after week after week to imagine the rooms and the size and the space and the cost and even where the building would sit on this property. And those meetings would sometimes go late into the night and we'd be running out of the place before 11 o'clock before the building alarm set itself. And I would get in my car and I would drive across Randolph Road all the way to 29, hang a left and head north to our home in Columbia. But finally, when the construction got underway, I charted a new course. I went in a new direction. And instead of going over to 29, I hung a left on New Hampshire Avenue so that I could see this house coming up out of the ground and check the progress of the day as vision turned to reality, little by little by little, never imagining that I would be here long enough to see this place need a new roof. (laughs) But I digress. The point is that a God-given vision changed my journey home. A God-given vision altered the direction of our life. And a few years later, when the Episcopal Bishop of Washington brought a group of pastors here to St. Andrew to hear that story, I remember one of them saying, must have taken a lot of courage to do that. My response was, I wish. Because if you want to know the truth, with that vision, there was also a lot of anxiety. And my prayer life improved immensely during those days. And on an even more personal note, I think of my mother, who days before she died said to me as I sat at her bedside, Mark, I am going to be so happy. That was her vision. And it meant the world to me, as it obviously did to her as she walked through the valley of the shadow of death and on to her new life in the house of the Lord and the glory of God forever. Because as Dr. King famously said, darkness cannot penetrate the darkness, only the light can penetrate the darkness of the valley. Only a vision of the crucified and risen Christ can take you into your eternal future. And so even though Peter didn't get it exactly right up on the mountain, 
or even down in the valley below. And even though there were moments of confusion and anxiety for all of them along the way, what they got was a sneak preview of Easter and its power to get them through that valley as they watched Jesus climb one more mountain, the one he would go alone, so that they could be free to talk about what they had seen, so that they could tell the story and share the vision of life with God forever. And so uh, when I quit thinking about my Ash Wednesday sermon and started doing my homework for this one, I read a newer commentary that told me something that I had never considered before. Just think, said the author, if Moses was on that mountaintop, then he obviously made it into the promised land after all. Thanks to Jesus. And even though the dedication of this house uh, was certainly one of my own mountaintop experiences when it was finally finished, I also give thanks for those dark nights when I would make my way home and I would stop here and I would get out of the car and by myself I would walk around in the shadows to check the progress of the day and there were times when I did that and I would just walk around here and I would pray for people that I didn't even know, people I hadn't even met yet. And I would wonder, who's coming here? Who's going to be baptized here in this place? Who will walk out of this place knowing that they are forgiven and loved by God? Who will be comforted here? For whom will this be a mountaintop experience? Who will come here and they will catch a vision of their place in this imperfect but beautiful and blessed family of God? And today, we are giving thanks for 56 more answers to that prayer and dedicating this self, this place, ourselves, and this ministry to God once again. Because as some of you know, on one of those nights when I was walking around in the shadows, I did see a dazzling light, and it was shining on me, and it changed me. Because in that light, I realized that I was not alone. I was surrounded by the Montgomery County Police. This is a true story. I'm the pastor. As you journey through uh, the season of Epiphany and on into Lent and throughout your journey home to God, may the dazzling light of Christ shine on your path and help you to move through your life and into your future with him. And when the valleys of your life and this world feel a little alarming to you, as they often do, just know that he is the light of the world and he shines into the heart of every person who follows him. And if you want to know what you can do with that vision of Christ in your life, then take some advice from our son David, who says, 
Now you can go. And you can tell the story for the hope of the world. In the name of El Shaddai, who changes our view of everything. Amen. I invite you to rise as we confess our faith together.